Hello and welcome to Kaleidoscope, a podcast series from the Science AAA's custom publishing office brought to you by AppCam, in which we will explore stories of scientific encounters that lead to incredible outcomes. My name is Sean Sanders. There is a proverb that states, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Although popular culture likes to venerate the lone scientist making the improbable breakthrough discovery, this doesn't reflect the true nature of the scientific endeavor today. Rather than being built by solitary scientists working late into the night, science is a highly collaborative enterprise that depends on cooperation and teamwork for mutual benefit. In this series, we're exploring how connections within the community, whether serendipitous or intentional, drive understanding and progress to new heights. How the journey to a new discovery can be as exciting and inspiring as the discovery itself, and how the personal stories and passions of the scientists create a vibrant community that makes progress happen. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Malcolm Skingle in the UK, where he works at GSK Managing Academic Liaison. This means that he's managing and collaborating with people across disciplines, borders, and cultures, as well as bridging academia and industry. We're going to talk about some of the challenges with bringing these diverse groups together. Malcolm, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Sean. Nice to speak with you. So, Malcolm, thinking Back on your career thus far, could you share an instance of a collaboration that you found particularly meaningful, successful, or fulfilling? I've been involved at this interface for more than 20 years, so there are literally dozens of collaborations that have been really fruitful. But the one that sticks in my mind as being continually excellent for our scientists is the one with Dundee Signaling Consortium. And this consortium's three to six companies. It's been going for more than 20 years. And they develop platform technologies and new biological and chemical reagents to look at receptors and enzymes in signaling pathways. And really, that's based on years of trust. The academics at Dundee have built trust with pharma companies. They get access to many of our proprietary tools, often more selective than what's available in academia. And there's very much a two-way flow of information. I think the reason for the success is that the collaboration agreement very clearly sets out in a program of research what is expected of each party, how much we're going to pay, how any potential IP might be exploited. And because these academics are working with several pharmaceutical companies, they have access to a broad range of tools and compounds that other people don't have access to which means that that yields great publications for them. We have discussion groups on where we think the science is going and what's of particular interest to the companies. They then consider how they might be able to advance our areas of research. And I always like to say that I think they work hand in hand with the pharma companies, but they're not in the pocket of the pharma companies. So we don't treat them like a CRO, a clinical research organisation. It's not a transactional thing. It's very much a co-development thing. But it does seem that in a, a relationship like that, both sides gain something. So you both have a reason for being in that collaboration. Is that right? We both gain massively. I mean, we only work with good scientists in good laboratories. We would often look in the first instance to the academic's publication profile, their field-weighted citation impact. You can tell a lot from that because you can see who the academic collaborates with. Are they international? They will have a, a higher station index if, if they are international. They work with other companies. 
obviously you, you want them to be industry friendly, but you don't necessarily want them to work with your competitors in exactly the same space. Although sometimes that, that, that's okay, because they might be doing underpinning research for all the companies. And you also want to consider whether or not they've got spin-out company aspirations, because you might want to license or possibly even buy that spin-out, but it might massively conflict if the objectives of the spin-out exactly the same objectives for developing, a, say, a molecule for a certain disease state in your own company. Do you feel the need to meet with any of these collaborators personally to get a more intimate sense of what they like, both as scientists, but also as people? Yes. I, I think that whenever you set up a collaboration, you need just three things. You need a program of research with clearly defined scientific deliverables in, and these are best if they're co-developed. You obviously need a budget, but then above all else, you need consenting adults. You need people who can work together. And I pride myself on always listening to what people want in these collaborations. You need to make sure that your objectives and the, the scientists' objectives overlap and that you sort out the win-win very early on. So that alignment of what you both want to get from, from that collaboration is important. Yeah, it certainly is. And, and what you find is that sometimes it might take, if someone's very new to working with me and my company, it might take me some time to convince them that it's a good thing to do in the first instance. But it's, I never struggle the second time because they always see the value, the non-financial value of working with us because obviously we've got world-leading scientists. We've got access to platforms and tools that they often wouldn't have access to. And we help drive their science for the greater good, which is obviously a good thing. Now, what about red flags? Is there anything you look out for that you would avoid in a collaborator? I mentioned the conflict of interest. You would look to see whether or not they were working with one of your competitor companies in exactly the same field. Although, again, I say if it's an underpinning platform, then sometimes that's a good thing because you then share the risk and potential reward of, of the research we're funding. If they're thinking about spinning out a company, then that needs managing. You can still do it, but you need to manage that because obviously you don't want the research that we're trying to exploit to go straight into the spin out and then we add value to it and then they try and license it back to us. That doesn't make too much sense. But you can map that out very easily in the program of research in the agreement. And I guess the other thing is when the academics stretch themselves, they want to be everything. They want to be the academic. They want to be the person going around the world giving talks on their science. They want to run a spin-out company. They want to be on various committees. Sometimes they spread themselves so finely, they don't have the bandwidth to actually do what they're supposed to be doing for us. Now, you've spent many years straddling that line between industry and academia. How do collaborations that bridge those two worlds differ from equivalent interactions within industry? The business-to-business -business type interactions are far more transactional. When you work with academia, you expect it to, you expect them to do what you've set out to do, but you also expect the curiosity-driven side of the science to meander a little bit. Sometimes that's good, sometimes it's bad. Depends how much far you meander. Sometimes we have to pull it back on track. But I think that's the, that's the primary difference. And of course, academics can choose who they work with. Clinical research organizations and other businesses, they will have shareholders. They will need to make a profit. Academics don't necessarily need industry. It does help drive their science if they do engage. But yeah, they, like I say, they don't have shareholders, so they can, they can walk away from us if, if they want to. But for the most part, I have to say we get tremendous value 
the the sound bite that's always used is you know about particularly in the UK about having 0.9 percent of the, the world's population and seven percent of the world's scientific publications, but 14 percent of the highly cited publications. And so that's why we go out of our way to make sure we've got really strong relationships in the UK. Doesn't mean to say that we don't work with the rest of the world, because obviously we do. We have even more collaborations in in the United States. But it's about on par, you know, the, the US academic spend and the UK academic spend is on par. And then we're also in a lot of other countries that you might not expect because you find great science in some really unexpected places. Do you notice any differences in how collaborations work, how partnerships work when you're working cross-culturally? Yes. I mean, you have to be aware of the very different cultures in different countries. And you have to think about, like any negotiation, you have to think about what different people's drivers are. I mean, different governments will have different co-funding schemes for sure. And different government will have different government priorities in certain scientific areas. So you have to be cognizant of that. You have to be cognizant of particularly data transferring across international boundaries. That can be an issue, particularly from a a security perspective, depending on which which country it is. I would say the UK, Europe have a greater focus on collaboration, whereas the US, a large part of it is focused more on licensing activity and to a lesser extent on collaboration. And I think, of course, the up until recent years, the level of funding in the United States for academics has been greater and they've been less hungry to, to work with industry, whereas I think the UK academics very much want to work with, with industry. And like I said to you before, it's not just for the money, it's because of the intellectual input and stimulation and direction and also access to the platforms and tools that we have available to us. So apart from the transactional side and and the obvious desire for there to be profit on both sides of, of the partnership, both of the partners are very likely also focused on broadening the base of knowledge for the scientific community and building interactions. So how do you look at that when you enter into a collaboration, you know, looking much more broadly at what you're inputting into the science community? We are pretty transparent about our science. and As soon as we can publish, we do publish. In fact, if you look at our field-weighted citation impact, it's higher than many of the universities we interact with because we only publish when we have something to say rather than you know publishing to get our next grant, which obviously some academics have to do. By collaboration, you get early access to publication. I mean, we will have publication clauses in agreements where there might be a slight delay should we, in the unlikely event that we want to patent something. But that is very, very rare. Often all we require is freedom to operate. And sometimes we will be in consortia where we all have access to the same information at the same time. So you can't leave it sitting on the back burner. You need to exploit it internally if if you're going to. Our scientists enjoy publishing just as much as the academic scientists. So we're very much driven to do that. And one final question for you. If you could give your younger self a a piece of advice that would better prepare them to develop successful collaborations, any thoughts on what that might be and what you wish you would have known back then? Yeah, that's a really nice concept, being my younger self. At the onset, I think that you should listen carefully to what each partner wants to achieve from the collaboration and very quickly find the areas of overlap so so you can develop that win-win as soon as possible. If you're struggling, then actually you should shake hands 
call it a day, and then try again on another occasion. And I think that once you get that going, if you're if you're going to proceed, then keep the communication channels open at all times. Be very transparent about what it is that is important to you. And wherever you can, leverage science and science funding because the co-funded projects collectively will help you de-risk your science. So, yeah, I'm very comfortable in, in what I do for my organisation. We've got some great collaborations and they add tremendous value not only to my company's science base, but also to the science base in general. If I could just pick up quickly on one thing that you said, you talked about, you know, sometimes if a collaboration doesn't work out, you shake hands and you, you part ways. So I think a lot of scientists don't want to fail at doing something, but I think sometimes that can be a positive. If something is not working, it's not necessarily a bad thing that you fail. So do you have any thoughts about when you get to that point, how you think about when a collaboration might work or, may, or whether maybe you should just go in separate directions? Yeah, I think if there's not a meeting of the minds, and really there I was talking about very early on in the process. I mean, once the thing's set up, you know, you obviously you're going to work to make sure that the marriage works and to make sure that the partners get do what they said they were going to do and also get from it what they want. Just that very engagement with academics adds value to their portfolio of science. It gives them more brownie points and credits when they're looking to get research funding from others. So, yeah, on occasion, you have, like in any large organisations, there will be some behaviour that you want to rule out, and we would deal with it. We would make sure that there was a recourse to action, and we'd either think, bring things back on track, or we would terminate. That was very, very rarely, Sean. Very rarely. Well, Malcolm, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Sean. Good to speak with you. Our thanks to AppCam for supporting this podcast. AppCam believes that progress happens together through the creation of a connected and supportive scientific community. To learn more about how you can progress with AppCam, go to appcam.me slash together. I'm Sean Sanders. Thank you for listening.